0: There's an interesting set of parallels in history if you look at the years 1517, 1717, and 1917. In each of these years, something happened that destroyed the sense of the Christian faith in Europe, and by extension, in the whole world. 1517 was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, the Great Western Schism when Martin Luther made his first steps towards separating what would become the Lutheran Church from the Catholic and apostolic faith. Central to Luther's theology was the idea that we do not receive grace, and hence the indwelling of faith through the sacraments. Rather, Luther taught that no bodily action, nor anything received by the body, can affect the soul in the way of salvation." Faith was reduced to a kind of vague trust in the word of God, found in sacred scripture, that one was saved. 1717 saw the founding of the first Grand Lodge of the Freemasons in London. The Masons are a fraternal organization dedicated to the idea that revealed Christian truth is irrelevant. They embrace deism which posits that there is some kind of God, but that the details of religion are false, or at least purely subjective. Throughout Europe, the Masons became a strongly anti-clerical force, seeking to secularize society by removing religion from public life. And then, in 1917, we have the Communist Revolution in Russia, based upon the teachings of Karl Marx, who said that religion was the opiate of the masses. And so the Soviet government ruthlessly suppressed the Christian faith, and indeed all faith, because God was incompatible with seeing the dictatorship of the proletariat as the highest and only authority in one's life. The interesting parallel in these three moments in history, besides the fact that they're equally spaced by 200 years, is that they successively chipped away at the three persons of the Trinity. The Protestant Reformation effectively killed the Holy Spirit. It said that the Spirit of God no longer resides in the Church, in the sacraments, or in the sacrificial priesthood. Instead, we can only have faith in Scripture— One important aspect of God's self-revelation, to be sure, but certainly not the only one. The founding of the first Grand Masonic Lodge represents the next step in killing off the triune God. Freemasonry was founded upon the idea that men should aspire to throw off the shackles of revealed religion and instead follow a simple deistic morality. In effect, Freemasonry killed Christ by denying that his incarnation, his death, and his his resurrection were of any account. To Masons, the only important thing was to see God as a kind of watchmaker who set the world in motion and governs it now by a sterile moral code. Finally, we have the communist revolution in Russia in 1917. Communism killed off any belief in God at all, or at least it tried. And so it killed God the Father. For the Marxists believe that everything, including the creation of the universe and the dignity of human beings, could be explained by scientific laws. There was no need to believe in a creator. Of these three turning points in history, however, I would like to focus on the Protestant Reformation, the loss of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, Martin Luther and the other reformers would not have said they were denying the Holy Spirit, but they were writing him out of the script by taking away his special role. Christ had said, And I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. For he will dwell with you and will be in you. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and he will bring you to remembrance of all that I have said to you. Christ was the bridge between God and man, for he was Christ our brother, alike to us in every way but sin. By his incarnation, he made Christians also sons to God the Father. It is why we can be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and from that receive the virtues of faith, hope, and love. These are strengthened in the Sacrament of Confirmation and renewed every time we receive the Eucharist worthily. The Holy Spirit, for his part, keeps that relationship to Christ alive in us. He energizes the virtues of faith, hope, and love, making them active in us and in the Church. How does the Holy Spirit do this? primarily by the conferral of his seven gifts which we find in Isaiah 11:2 these gifts are wisdom understanding counsel knowledge fortitude piety and fear of the lord these seven gifts perfect the operation of faith hope and love in us first is wisdom wisdom is loving what god loves The second is understanding. Understanding is skill at discerning the truth. The third is counsel. Counsel is right judgment in action, practical wisdom. Fourth is fortitude. Fortitude is courage, overcoming fear in this world in order to do God's will. Fifth is piety. Piety is our willingness to worship God and to serve him. Sixth is knowledge. Knowledge is our understanding of the divine realities. And seventh is fear of the Lord. This fear of the Lord is not a servile fear of punishment, rather it is the fear of being separated from God's love by sin. Unfortunately, in the worldview of Martin Luther and the other Protestant reformers, there was no place for these gifts in the poor sinner known as man nor, by extension, in the Church, which is simply all those sinners writ large. Instead, Luther believed in the deus Abscondus, the hidden God, who revealed some aspects of himself in Scripture, but was otherwise an impenetrable mystery to mankind. Because of this, Luther taught that men had no business trying to speculate about the application of Christianity, to the questions of the day, except as they could be shown to be directly and unequivocally taught by Scripture. He despaired of human reason, and thus he despaired of even the power of the Holy Spirit, God himself, to enlighten that reason with these seven gifts. Luther could not believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are active in the Church, because that would require presupposing, in a limited way, that there can be a synergy between God and man. This indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of believers supposes that our rational nature is disposed, of course with the grace of God, to see in some ways as God himself sees. And of course, this position has significant practical consequences. Because Luther despaired of our ability to reason with our faith, And to apply our faith to questions of justice, he taught that Christians should simply reserve judgment about all states of affairs in the world. Instead of trying to make the world a better, more loving, or more just place, Luther taught that a Christian is simply meant to suffer through this life, clinging only to his faith in his own salvation, aided only by the Bible." But instead, if we turn to scripture, we see that God does not mean for us to live this kind of truncated existence, even in this life. In the Old Testament, King Solomon prayed for wisdom and understanding so that he could rule God's people as a true servant leader. And this is illustrated later when King Solomon is presented with the famous case of the two women quarreling over who is the true mother of the newborn. I'm sure you've all heard this story. Solomon had the wisdom and understanding to set up a true test. He realized that a real mother would never allow harm to befall her child. Other gifts are highlighted in the gospel passage from today. We see the parable of the hidden treasure. The man discovers the treasure and so he buys the whole field in order to obtain title to the treasure. In his actions, we see the gifts of counsel and fortitude. First, counsel, because the man had to make the determination that this is the right course of action, that the treasure will be worth the price paid for the whole field. But second, fortitude, because the world will call him a fool for selling all that he has to buy this field, because they do not know of the treasure, and he must have the courage to persevere in the face of their criticism. Then we have the parable of the pearl of great price. Although it might seem almost the same as the previous parable, it is actually very different. Because in biblical times, pearls were considered, in a special way, gifts from God. They were often valued far in excess of their actual monetary value because they were a sign of God's favor. So in this parable, the merchant Also sells all that he has to obtain the pearl. But in this, instead of counsel and fortitude, I think we are meant to see piety and fear of the Lord. The pearl represents closeness to God. And acquiring the pearl shows the man's willingness to sacrifice everything he has for the sake of his relationship to God. (laughs) Finally, we have the parable of the hall of many fish, where the good and the bad fish are separated representing the final judgment. This speaks of the gift of knowledge, which means understanding divine realities, understanding that all things in this life, of whatever nature, must be understood through the prism that we will be judged fit for heaven or hell by how we lived and how we loved in this life. In each of these parables, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like meaning that the kingdom of God is something we are living for today, not just waiting for. It is something we are meant to understand, even if imperfectly, and come closer to it by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We are meant to exercise the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit acting in us, elevating us to be instruments of God's will on this earth. We are not experiencing these gifts in our lives. We have to ask ourselves why. Is it some particular sin? A lack of faith? A lack of charity? Maybe a lack of prayer? We need to dedicate ourselves to asking the Holy Spirit into our hearts to fulfill our mission as Christians. Let us remember the prayer of St. Augustine. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen.